0: G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and as this election year gets underway in the United States, uh, here's an uncomfortable question for you. Is one of the presidential candidates a criminal? And if he is a criminal, will the courts find him as such and sentence him as such this year? If not... When could they? When might they? What exactly is the shape of Donald Trump's legal woes? Is it all a partisan witch hunt as he portrays it? Or is there a there there? Or are some of the cases ones in which there's a there there and others in which uh, it probably is a little bit of a witch hunt? I want to untease all this. I want to unpack it. I want to understand what's going to happen this year and whether Donald Trump will ever go to jail. What if he loses the election? Like, then what happens? Could joe biden commute his sentence like let's actually play out let's understand what he's being accused of and play out what might be about to happen because we're in uncharted waters here i mean this is supremely weird to be going into an election where one of the candidates faces four criminal uh There's no one better in the world to understand all this stuff than Ellie Honig. Ellie was a mob prosecutor. He fought the mafia in New York for years. Um, from 2004 to 2012, he was the assistant United States attorney at the Southern District of New York, which is that the court in New York, I mean, be part of the, uh, ju- the justice system that most addresses itself to the crimes of the mob because they're in that neck of the woods. And he specifically prosecuted organized crime. He became the co-chief of the Organized Crime Unit at the Southern District of New York, um, and he convicted over 100 members of the American mafia. Uh, He now is a legal analyst for CNN. So you see his face all, all over the place. He's the senior legal analyst at CNN since 2018. So he brings this depth of experience that he has about how organized crime works and about how the heads of crime rings are able to uh, evade the justice system when so many people under them fall prey to it. Um, and he can sort of superimpose that understanding onto what's going on in, uh, in Trump- Trumpistan. Um, it's fascinating. I really enjoyed his, uh, his book um, about all of this and about the relationship between uh, organized crime and the way that rich and powerful people who are outside of organized crime, whether that's you regard that as being Donald Trump or whether you regard it as being Harvey Weinstein or, or Jeffrey Epstein or whatever, um, how they managed to evade capture for so long. The book is called Untouchable. Please enjoy this conversation with the one and only, Ellie Honey.
1: Australia, uh, an Australian relevant thing to raise with you.
0: Oh, good. Well, tell me about it now. We'll 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 cut into this whenever whenever. Oh, you want want to to. talk? Start. Yeah, yeah. Let's start. Um,
1: so I I've never been to Australia. Yeah. Uh, I do have a couple friends there, um, but I'm right in the middle of reading the true history of the Kelly Gang about Mm. Ned Kelly, which I read 20 years ago, but have no. All I remember was it was great, and so I'm rereading it now, and it's so Australian, right? Have you ever read it? Never read it. No. Do you want to tell American listeners who Ned Kelly is? So Ned Kelly is sort of just a gangster, basically. I mean, not to minimize him, but it's set in the uh, 1870s, I guess, a little bit after the American Civil War. There's a couple references to how there was the prior decade, there was the American Civil War. And it's in what I guess you would call, I don't know, the bush or the range of Australia when it was sort of wild and unsettled. And it's kind of wild west, but Australian. And the thing that there's so much about it, I mean, it's a great story. It's a... But... It's based on the actual diaries written by Ned Kelly. They found you know, old weather pieces of parchment or whatever they wrote on. And it's written in his way. It's fiction, but it's based on his diaries and it's told, it's written, I forget the name of the author, which a genius. Um, it's written in the uh, from the mouth of Ned Kelly. And so it's not oh, cool. grammatically correct and there's no punctuation, but it doesn't it, uh, I would hate a book like that if you told me that but it doesn't throw you off at all. It's riveting. It's like, so I'm I'm like mentally in this Australian frame of mind. So your 19th
0: century Australian criminal uh, history knowledge is probably better than my own. I should be peppering (laughs) you with questions about Outback Bush rangers in the 1800s.
1: (laughs) Listen, there are some parallels. I I mean, the way that, that, seriously, like, We'll talk about it, but there are scenes where the cops are trying to flip people against each other and and all that. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah,
0: crazy. Uh, I've just noticed if people are uh, watching the YouTube uh, video instead of the um, instead of listening to the podcast, <laughs> the shade of my face is approximately the same as a beetroot, uh, or maybe a tomato, <laughs> maybe an overripe tomato. At yeah, the I'm you only look like you just got sun. I'm only slightly sunburned, but there's something about here. Let me see if this light. I think this light has different shades on it. Oh, look! Now I look like a blue. I got a I got a new fancy light. Oh, now I look like more of a beach. Oh yeah, now you look yeah. And now I look. For
1: the record, I haven't seen the sun in four months.
0: Yeah, <laughs> this is one of the liabilities of living in the northeast of the United yeah. States. Uh, although I was just over there and there was no snow at Christmas, and I was very disappointed that you we know, didn't get Christmas a white Christmas.
1: Like. I'm starting to wonder whether it even snows here anymore. Because it used to snow three, four times every winter when I was a kid. Now it's like every four years we get three inches, and it's, know. it's changed. I think it's genuinely changed. So, yeah. and it's the like that's the worst because if if it's good, if you're gonna
0: bother being cold, then I at least want it to be fun. Agreed. You know, Agreed. I want yep. it to be snowy. If I'd yep. rather it be minus fifteen Celsius than <laughs> you know, yeah, this five is cool. degrees and just sort of drizzly yeah. and slushy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk organized crime and let's talk uh, Donald Trump. The, yeah. Your book is an interesting snapshot um, from a, a time in a, a snapshot of time when Donald Trump hadn't been charged with anything and your frustration kind of oozes through every page, <laughs> um, which I assume has changed now. Can we just start with like if you were a betting man, what, what are the odds at the moment that Donald Trump actually ends up seeing jail time for something?
1: So um, I'll answer your odds question in a second. You know, when we wrote, when I wrote this book, I say we because I had researchers, and you know, I think of it as a team. But when we wrote this book, it had to the way when you write a book, it has to lock at a certain point, and then it publishes four months later or something because they got to send it off to the actual printer. And so we had to lock this. It's so old in, school, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I it love takes, they have they have to shred the trees and then no, they do. The I mean, it's crazy. It, tree and by the way. Hits. it's. You would think that every one of the major publishers, and I wrote this book for Harper Collins, which is one of the three major publishers, you would think they all have their own printing presses. Not at all. There's like three printing presses in the whole country, and they all have to like reserve space and rent them. Um, But so we locked this book in late 2022, and it published in early January 2023, as you say, at a point when Trump had not been charged. And yes, my frustration is oozing in there, but I do say in the book. By the time you, fair reader, are holding this book, he probably will have been charged probably more than once or something. To that. Mm. And I sort of forecast, I will say not everything I forecast in the book comes true, but a hell of a lot of it has come true. Um, as we stand right now, Trump has four criminal indictments against him here in the United States, two federal, two state. Um, it looks th- OK, let me let me sort of take some things off the table. He will not be physically locked up before the election in November. That is not going to. I know it's a little bit of a fantasy that's out there because in order for that to happen, he has to not just be convicted, which could well happen, sentenced to prison, which could well happen. But generally speaking, judges here are going to give a person in his scenario, first time offender, what we call bail pending appeal, meaning he doesn't even if he's sentenced to X years in prison, he doesn't begin serving that sentence until after he's exhausted all of his appeals, which will take, you know, a year two years. So even if we have this dramatic moment in this spring or summer where some jury says we find the defendant Donald Trump guilty, that will matter a lot. Um, but he's not going to get he's not going to be behind bars in November of this year when the election happens. So let's take that one off the table. Um, how many trials are, are actually going to happen? You know, there's a whole game of we can get into this if you want, but a whole game of sort of dominoes and delay tactics by Trump and speeding up tactics by the by the prosecutors But it looks like one or two will happen before the election. Um, The most important one is the Jack Smith, the federal case involving January 6th, um, which is sort of being fought about the trial date right now. Then there's the hush money payments case, which might happen as well. But that's, I think, by far the least serious and the least likely to have a major impact on the election. Then there's the classified documents case, which indications seem to be that it's likely to move out past the trial. And then there's the Georgia Fulton County DA's case, which also has to do with stealing the 2020 election. That one is not happening before the election. That one you can put off to the side. The DA has asked for a trial, not seriously, a trial date in August, which is which ain't happening. There's not going to be a criminal trial in August, September, October, November, December when we have an election in November. Right, so right. Um, that one for now is just for show. So I think we'll see one or two of those other ones. And just
0: to clarify, you said that there are two federal cases and two state cases. Right. The president of the United States can quash either of the federal cases or can pardon anyone convicted by either of those federal
1: cases, but not the state ones? So, yeah. So one of the fears that some people have, and I think I understand this, is if Trump wins the election, which right now is, you know, a 50-50 proposition, um, if that happens, in my view, all four of these cases are dead, Um, the president can A- Forget about pardoning. That's controversial. We don't actually know if a president can pardon himself. It's never been tried. It's not squarely addressed. Um, but A, I think he will pardon himself. And if he does, by the way, who's going to challenge it? Not his own DOJ, right? Remember, DOJ is under the executive branch, the federal executive branch. Um, and B, he will just
0: order and his- just, aid- just to pause yep. on that for a moment. Could
1: uh, could
0: someone else find standing to challenge no. that?
1: I mean, that's a great question. Someone will certainly try I don't know who other than DOJ would have challenge, would have standing to say we what about a potential presidential candidate? I don't think that's enough for standing. I mean, what would be the basis of I've been harmed, right? That's basically what you have to show to It's, it's harmed in some legally cognizable way. That's interesting. Let me well, think about
0: that. I this mean, right? like couldn't it? Yeah. yeah, couldn't a potential Republican rival claim that the fact that the person is still in the White House gives them an incumbent edge
1: that they wouldn't have if they were the, Behind but buyers? there's a practical problem here, which is Trump wouldn't be able to pardon himself until he already wins and retakes office. I see. So then we're into 2025. He's in his second term anyway. Wait, and why really... can't he pardon himself in his first term? Well, his first term's already over. He's not in office. You can only pardon oh, yourself what you're while... saying. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah So yeah. He you, can't you can run only pardon anyway. yourself while you're in office. He did not do that during his first term. There's the self pardon scenario mm. would be he wins again in November, retakes office limits. in January 2025, and then does it. Um, yeah. The other right. thing he'll do that's more direct, though, is he'll just order his new DOJ. If he, if he retakes the White House in January 2025, he'll say, OK, Attorney General, dismiss this or he'll make it a condition of the job. So the two federal cases will die if that happens. As for the two state cases, there's kind of a way you can parse some of the old constitutional findings that, well, maybe they're different. But, I mean, he can't pardon himself, but there's no practical way that the federal courts and the federal government will permit a state and county level prosecutor to try and potentially imprison the sitting president. I mean, that's no different than if some county prosecutor in, name your county, um, Mississippi right now, indicted Joe Biden and said, I want to try him You know, while he's in office and potentially lock him up. That just because of principles of federalism that the federal government sort of reigns supreme over the state, there's no way that that'll happen. So I think best case scenario well, it'll, be,
0: it'll be good to see some constitutional conservatives who say that they're so committed to states rights and federalism uh yeah. come out and uh, and defend the right of the yeah, states to Yeah, there's been a bit of flipping to do their both own ways. Thing.
1: Yeah, there's been a bit of flipping both ways as to who's for states rights and who's for for federal rights. But um the best case scenario for the two state cases if Trump wins is they get put on hold until he's out of office in 2029 uh by which point he's going to be god knows 80 two years old and these cases will be ancient. Who knows where we'll be at that point. Can you pause a case like that? So that's another interesting issue, right? Because the statute of limitation, well, but the statute of limitations is based on when you indict. Um, What Trump would say, let's say it's 2029. We're really getting it. This is great. Trump makes all the hypotheticals come true. Let's (laughs) say he he wins. It's 2029. And the Manhattan DA says, I still want to try him. He's out of office now. I think Trump would say, my my basic good faith rights to a speedy trial have now lapsed, and it's been too long. And I think the prosecutors will go, yeah, but not through our fault. I mean, you're, you're the one who dodged trial. You're the one who then hid behind the presidency. I, I just don't see a realistic scenario where we're having a trial of a post-second term 82-year-old Donald Trump in 2029.
0: Mm. And ultimately, if that had to be decided in the courts, then it would go to the Supreme Court and presumably- Probably. Probably. Supreme Court would side yeah. with him, one might imagine. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating stuff. I, I feel like I want to get on to organized crime, but given yeah. that we're pressed for time, I, I also just want to want people who might be confused by the four cases that you just threw down on the table yeah. to be able to pass those. Yeah. Um, should we go in order of, like, severity
1: slash plausibility? Yeah, let's do plausibility? that. Yeah, and In by the Hawaii? way, I do this all the time. Anytime I'm, I'm sure on the yeah. and I start talking about these, I go, now this is the federal because yes. there's no way a normal human, which I'm not, can keep this straight. <laughs> um four criminal indictments. <laughs> Two of them are federal, brought by DOJ, the special counsel Jack Smith. One of them relates to January 6th, although it's really more about the pre January 6th. Special 6. counsel, what... just
0: briefly. What's a special counsel? So
1: special counsel is when the attorney general of the United States let me let me take it back a step. Our president nominates the attorney general who then has to be approved by our Senate. So Joe Biden nominated the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, who was a longtime judge and a former prosecutor before that, um, back at the beginning of his term. And then in certain uh, extraordinary circumstances where you may have a conflict of interest, the attorney general has the power to appoint a special counsel. So Merrick Garland, about a year and a half into his term, appointed Jack Smith as Special counsel that Robert Mueller was special counsel. Also, if people rem- remember that there's been a couple of basically
0: someone who's going to undertake a specific investigation that the Justice Department wants to be able to keep somewhat at arm's length or, or keep the you, illusion of political impartiality around. Got
1: it right on the head. Exactly. It's somebody who has a specific mission and the purpose is to create that little bit of arm's length distance from the, the, the DOJ. So Special Counsel Jack Smith has two indictments. One of them relates to the effort to steal the 2020 election, sometimes called, called the January 6th indictment, although it really doesn't have to do with, he doesn't charge Trump with inciting the uh, riot or anything like that. He charges him with basically a several month long conspiracy to try to steal the election through fraud. So that's one, the most serious, I think. That one's based in Washington, D.C. There's a second federal case brought by Jack Smith for the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and obstruction of justice. That one's in federal court, but in Florida, where, by the way, Trump is popular. He's very unpopular in D.C. with the populace, and he's very popular in Florida. Then we have two state level cases. One of them was brought by the Manhattan, which, you know, New York City district attorney for falsifying records of hush money payments that Trump made to Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress, in 2016. It's already eight years old, this conduct. Um, the Fed, I report on this actually in the book, the Fed's passed on this. The, 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 DOJ looked at this and they just decided the proof wasn't good enough. The conduct wasn't recent enough. The conduct wasn't serious enough. I lay out the inside reasons for it, um, which we can agree or disagree with. And then the final case comes out of Fulton County, which is Atlanta, Georgia, um, which also charges Trump with trying to steal the 2020 election. I'm not it, it doesn't really add much. It, it's very if you were to graph the facts alleged by that case in Jack Smith's case, they would overlap substantially so there's a fair debate here about whether that state level charge is necessary or appropriate or whether it serves some other purpose beyond what jack smith's cases serve could it what would that purpose be well i think people say um trump cannot pardon himself from a state case right but he can pardon himself from jack smith's case which is true but it runs into the same problems i said before if trump becomes president again he he He'll pardon himself from Jack Smith's case, and he probably is not triable by Fonnie Willis by by a ca- county DA while he's in office. Right. right, Um, Other people tried to say, "Well, the DA alleges different." Co- or they were before we saw the indictment. There were people saying, "Oh no, she's going to allege a different case." And then we saw the indictment. It's the exact same thing. I mean, okay. it's packaged okay. in in the language of state charges rather than federal, but the conduct is almost entirely overlapping.
0: And the conduct, to clarify for people, is not conduct, uh, uh, the conduct is not the fact that Trump said, I don't think that I, I think that there are shenanigans here, I don't think Joe Biden is the legitimate winner, uh, yep. I, we, sh- we need to defend our country, and other things that might have incited people to protest and to violently right. attack the Capitol. The conduct that is being alleged
1: that's illegal is what? So, great point. Um, Jack Smith could have charged insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. He did not. He could have charged inciting a riot, you know, rallying up the crowd and be there, we'll be wild, and we're going to go down to the Capitol and show strength. He did not. And I think wisely, those would have been really difficult because he, Trump also said, whether one believes he believed it or not, he probably didn't. But he did say, be patriotic and peaceful or something like that. What Jack Smith has charged Trump with is really a conspiracy and a fraud. Um, to steal the election by falsely claiming that he won when he knew he didn't, by pressuring state, local congressional officials to throw votes his way when he knew he had lost, by pressuring the vice president to throw out votes for Biden when he knew or should have known the vice president had no such power. Um, So it's really, like I said, it's a misnomer to call it the January 6th indictment. It's really the, um, it's not as catchy, but you know, the Election date up through January 5th indictment. In fact, the actual Jack Smith's actual indictment only mentions the actual physical attack on the Capitol. It it says Trump tried to leverage, it doesn't say Trump caused it. It says Trump tried to leverage the uncertainty that resulted from that attack in order to, you know, accomplish his mission of stealing the election.
0: Right. And Trump's defenders and presumably Trump's defense say, This is basically criminalizing speech. I mean, you're you're basically making it impossible for a wronged candidate to raise questions about the legitimacy of an election by using the tools of the state to punish dissent. And There are First Amendment rights in the United States to say whatever you want, and you're allowed to go out and say what you want. What's wrong with that
1: defense? Uh, I think that's absolutely one of the two defenses, and you stated it really well, uh, Josh. Um, I think the comeback, you know, we have very broad First Amendment rights. You're allowed to lie. I mean, you know, you can, you can be sued for defamation at a certain point, but the First Amendment protects horrible speech. It protects, in, in many circumstances, lies. It protects, in many circumstances, dangerous language. Um, we we set the bar very high in the United States for where speech can become a crime in particular. And and the type of speech that is entitled to the highest level of protection is political speech. So he will argue what you just said. This is political speech. I'm entitled to contest an election. I'm entitled... I'm even allowed to lie. I can get on... In, behind a microphone and say, I won. And there's massive fraud. I mean, it's not great, but it's not a crime, he would argue. It's protected by the First Amendment. What? And Jack Smith takes this on. In in the very first page of his indictment, he says, yes, there is First Amendment rights. But he argues that what Trump did sort of crossed the line into unprotected speech. I mean, not all speeches protect. If I tell you, Josh, hey, um, I'd like you to murder so-and-so, and I buried a gun outside your house, use that. That's, all I'm doing is talking, but it makes me part of the crime. So, um, So, the prosecutor, then this is what the jury will have to resolve. The other defense Trump's going to make is something along the lines of, look, I had advisors telling me I had lost the election, right? We all, we saw it publicly. His attorney general said it's over. There's no fraud. Other responsible, important people told them you lost. But I also had other advisors telling me I had not lost and there was fraud and I needed to fight it. Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. Now, a, 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 a sound-minded person will go, how could you listen to Rudy and Sidney Powell? They're maniacs. You know, people even call them team crazy versus team normal. I'm not so, so, I mean, I agree. I agree it's wild to listen to Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell. I agree that the reality was Trump, I'm sure, was just trying to cherry pick whatever advice he wanted to hear. But you get into the problem, he'll say, look, presidents get competing advice from their advisors all day long, every day. And if you're going to make it a crime for him, he doesn't always have to listen to the stodgiest voice in the room or the best educated voice in the room. Sometimes he can, you know, he's entitled to listen to whatever. And he's got different groups of advisors telling him different things. He chose to trust Group B rather than Group A. Maybe history will judge him harshly for that. But is it a crime? I'm articulating his defense here. But I think, again, the comeback to that is he knew what he was doing. He was just looking for whoever would facilitate his lies and his fraud. And why, why does he,
0: he did need that. to have known what he was doing? I, I'm, I'm a little bit hazy on that second defense, because yeah. if Rudy Giuliani says it's my professional legal opinion that you should kill so-and-so and Trump goes and does it, then right. it doesn't change. It's, the fact that he had legal advice doesn't change the fact that the conspiracy or the murder or the plot to steal the election or whatever that underlying allegation is was yeah. legal.
1: So there are limits. We call this the advice of counsel defense, or Trump might try to make some sort of second cousin of that. But um, there are limits, including the advice can't be patently ridiculous that any normal human would realize is ridiculous. You know, like if your lawyer says, go ahead and kill that person, no sane minded person would say, "Okay." but if you're getting into arcana of was the election stolen? Do we what rights do you have? Can you contest it? it's more arguable. but And to your question, why does it matter if Trump knew he lost? Because you have to prove criminal intent. I mean, what if Trump genuinely thought he won? What if he did actually? He did not. But what if he did actually win? Would his conduct here have crossed the line? It's a criminal. I don't know. Um, Again, he did not win. I believe he did not. I believe he knew he did not win. I believe he was putting on fronts and covers here, but I'm just sort of playing these arguments out for you.
0: I'm, I'm still unclear. So it does make a material. You do need a, <clears throat> a mens rea, so to speak, yes, like a guilty mind. mind. You need the person to be aware that they're committing a crime in order for it to be a crime in this case. You need seems to know that
1: weird. what you're doing is wrong and unlawful. You don't need to show the person knew, well, the, the statute, code, number, whatever. I'm probably violating that now. But I mean, you know, there are various ways you can prove mens rea, meaning a guilty mind. Um, some of the things Trump did, arguably, it doesn't matter whether he thought he won or not. Like if if you read his conversation, his famous conversation with the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who says, I need you to find 11,780 votes. If you read that as he's asking this guy to fabricate votes, it doesn't matter if Trump thought he won or lost. That, that's guilty mind anyway. There's some debate about whether that's actually what Trump was trying to say there, We can which we can get to if you want. Um, but for a lot of the other stuff, pressuring Mike Pence, it. If, if Trump really believed that he lost the election and that there was fraud and that some of the states should be thrown out, is it criminal for him to say to the vice president, hey, we have infra- – I think some of those were were, were wrong, were fraud, and sh- and you shouldn't count them when it co- – I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying it's a great defense, but mm. this is – you do have to prove some wrongful state of mind. If he knew he lost and he pressured Mike Pence, you clearly have the wrongful state of mind. Okay.
0: That's interesting. That strikes me as – somewhat bizarre in a way like because the yeah. the whole point of having a procedural process of relying on systems and norms and rules and processes right. rather than just outcomes is right. that you follow the processes like they, well, they you know you should be able to run a democracy or a liberal democracy a million times over through a million elections and some of them might be unjust some of them might even go the wrong way but everyone follows the processes and the rules because over the long run that's how you end up with the better result you don't have individuals yeah. saying well i think the rules you know are actually wrong here so i want to circumvent it because i think in actual fact i should have won for this reason or that that just gets too complicated that's why the yep. founding fathers write a constitution everyone obeys the constitution they follow the processes and everyone like to me that is the the bottom line regardless of whether it yields the correct result in every instance
1: you're exactly right. And I think one of the prosecution's point is you're allowed to contest an election. You can go to court. You can demand recounts depending on the state and what the vote count is. And Trump did all those things. And even after they failed, he continued to take these outside the process questions. I think what Trump will argue is, no, he was within the process. I mean, yes, he filed lawsuits and all that. Um you know, you can lean on the vice. Look, there were people leaning on the vice president to do both things. There were people leaning on him to throw out the votes and people leaning on him to not throw out the votes. Um, I think the people leaning on him to not throw out the votes were legally correct, but does that make the other side criminal? Or were they engaging in a sort of aggressive, maybe even frivolous reading of the law? Same thing with like submitting the fake electors. You could say, well, that was a fraud. They were trying to deceive. But what they're saying, what they'll say is, no, we were just submitting them just in case we happened to win some of the court of, court uh, cases. We needed to have that piece of paper on the books. So, but
0: this will yeah, be the exactly. this, with this fake electors thing. So the, yeah. that is, I mean, that is probably the most damning wrinkle in all this to me, just to my uneducated ear. They mm-hmm. tried to recruit people from states they that did. might have gone either way. They recruited these people. And who were these people in order to do what?
1: So, in seven contested states that Trump lost closely, um, what they did, the way it's supposed to work is when a state, states basically get to run and certify their own elections. And normally, when a state's done, I live here in New Jersey, the governor, whoever it is, the secretary of state, will fill out this official paperwork. You know, each state has a certain number of electoral votes. I think I should know this. I think in Jersey, we have 16, and it'll just say, We, the people of New Jersey, our votes go over, our 16 votes go to candidate A or B. And here's the name of the electors, which is just ceremonial people who will vote for one side or the other. Um, And they will physically
0: go to Washington, D.C. Goes to the Senate. And they will vote on behalf of the people of that state. Exactly.
1: What Trump's people tried to do is in seven states, they submitted forms, which use basically the same language that I just told you. But instead of saying Joe Biden won our state, which he did. It says Donald Trump won our state, and here's the people who are going to be casting the electoral votes, however many number the state has, for Donald Trump. Now, on the face of it, I agree. I think it's one of the strongest pieces of evidence prosecutors have. This is – it's false. Donald Trump did not win those states. The, the comeback has been – well, but again, those were contingency plans. Those were – we were putting in those paperwork. People have actually done this before in different scenarios, but said in case – look, this one's contested, state of Arizona – and in case it turns out that Trump wins, these are going to be the electors. The problem is the forms don't say that. Two of actually two of the seven states do say that, do say these are just contingent forms in case we win. But the other five do not say that. Um, so the fake elector scheme is in a way, um, in some ways, I think the strongest piece of evidence that prosecutors have here. The But the other, here's the other thing. You have to try, you have to, as a prosecutor, tie Donald Trump to it. So it's pretty clear, you know, the people who signed it were involved. It's pretty clear Rudy was involved. You're going to need someone to say, and Trump was involved and blessed this, which I assume they have. But it's not enough to just show this happened and it was for Trump's benefit. Right. You have to show Trump was involved somehow. And
0: did these electors, was is there a date by which these forms need to have been... Submitted or signed that would give credence or credibility to the claim that they were contingencies that they couldn't have been done after the
1: fact. So there's a date. So our our elections happen in early November. There's a date called the Safe Harbor date. It's December 14th, I want to say, somewhere around the middle of December. And by then, basically all disputes have to be resolved. So they have to. So I think what you're getting at, Josh, is right that some of these certificates were submitted after all the lawsuits were done and over with, after any real. Hope for the Trump people should have been over. So therefore it was really an attempt at fraud.
0: Right. And are those certificates signed by the governor of the state? Who do they have to be signed by?
1: So they're not signed by the governor. They're signed by the electors themselves, and then they're submitted to the state itself, like the whatever the right, sector is. The state.
0: electors are just people, aren't they? They're
1: normal they're, like, they're normal they're, people. They're like I low can be level. An elector, yeah, they're I'm basically like citizen. people active in the party or low level. But but they've been charged in some of the cases. I mean, the elector, the people in Georgia, for example, again, I forget that. I think Georgia has 16 electoral votes. For some reason that I don't fully understand, the DA chose to charge, I think it's three of the 16 people. There are other states that have charged all their electors with crimes. I, I'm blanking on which ones. I forget, maybe Wisconsin or Michigan or something. But a couple of the states have charged their electors with state-level fraud crimes. Other states have not. Um,
0: so who has the job of determining who's an elector and who's not? Is it the vice president? I think
1: when it's up the, up to the party happens? apparatus of a state. It's kind of like an honorary thing. So, like the Democrat again, to use New Jersey, the Democratic Party of New Jersey will say if Biden wins, these sixteen people, and it's like mayors and council people and maybe donors, and it's it's an honorary thing. We'll say these sixteen people are going to be our electors if we win, and the Republican Party of New Jersey will say, and if Trump wins, it'll be these sixteen donors and bigwigs and.
0: Local right. And if members. both parties send in certificates claiming victory. Is yep. there a system of what happens? The or is The state it-
1: has to certify the state officials. The state secretary of state goes, this is the one we're stamping. And that's what happened with all seven states. The, dem- the the state, whether it was, by the way, some of these states were run by Republicans, but they said, yeah, no, Democrats won, Biden won. Trump's team tried to like get tricky and send their forms directly into the US Senate without going through the state, without getting them stamped right. by the state and say, oh, no, actually we won
0: count these. So in a way, we were lucky that there weren't Trump hack loyalists in the secretary of state offices in some of these states, because you could imagine a scenario in which uh, a a Republican governor and Republican secretary of state signed the wrong certificate. I mean, just in order to get the Republican into power, even if their voters voted for the Democrat.
1: For sure. And, and, And I'll add to that. I mean, imagine if Mike Pence, the vice president at the time, had done what Trump was pressuring him to do. I mean, Trump was putting on a heavy, heavy blitz on him. Borderline threatening him that when you get up on January 6th, this is why January 6th is January 6th. That's when Congress gathers to officially count. It's for it's always been up until 2021. It was always just a ceremony. Um, and you know, um, not meaningless, but a not a it's not a court trial. It's a, you just read the names. Um Mike Pence refused, but Trump wanted Pence to say when he got to the first contested state, Arizona, on down the line, Pennsylvania, to say, I reject. As because the vice president has the ceremonial role of basically just reading it out. And Pence refused. But what what if, I mean, it's one of the great what ifs. What if Pence said, okay, and then he stood up on January 6th in the well of Congress, and he said, okay, uh, next up is Arizona, and I've rejected these uh, votes because of fraud, and I send it back. We would have, I mean, people overuse, I think, the phrase constitutional crisis. Um, I think a const. I define a constitutional crisis as we don't know what happens next because as many bad, crazy, strange things that happen, we can always go, okay, what happens next is you appeal to the Supreme Court. We wouldn't know what happened there. I mean, maybe you go to, I don't know, do you go to the Supreme Court? Can they even, is there even, it, it boggles the mind. And so Mike Pence, and there was others who refused to go along with this plan who many of whom have now become witnesses in the January 6th committee and probably in these um, in these criminal trials too. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just trying to think that through.
0: The Supreme Court needs a legal argument. Someone needs to have the standing to bring the case, and the case needs to have legal coherence. It's not good enough to say, Yeah, but they're breaking the rules. Right. (laughs) You You need to point to the rule that they're breaking. The Supreme Court's not just like a complaint
1: desk, you know, like, (laughs) um, but you're right. You would need, I mean, I think my best guess is. We would have, we collectively would have figured out some way to challenge what Pence had done in the Supreme Court if he did that. I think some state would have sued some other state. That's one of the ways actually that the Supreme Court can actually take a case immediately as like state versus state, um, mm. saying we've been disenfranchised. But you've only got two weeks
0: something. between January
1: 6th yeah. and the inauguration. So that, what happened? Like it, how quickly do they act? Yeah, I mean they'd have to. They, you know, judges can judges and justices can act as quick as they want. I mean, with Bush versus mm-hmm. Gore, they acted in a matter of days. Um, they act like, you know, they like to stand on ceremony and take their merry time. And sometimes people can't believe how long appeals take. But if that had happened, um, A, I suspect even even this court with six conservatives would have said, No way. Yeah, um I, yeah. again, we're guessing here, and I guess they would have done it pretty quickly, but then the other side would have flipped out and said, Oh, the Supreme Court just stole I mean, you know, it would have been
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, there, so that's the strongest case. We don't. I don't think we need to go through all of them. I just want to touch yep. on uh, Stormy Daniels, and just to 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 put a button on the free speech thing. If any listeners yep. are somewhat persuaded by the idea that uh, you know all he did was talk, he didn't really do anything other than say words, and that's protected under the First Amendment. I did hear a, a lawyer say to me, "There are lots of crimes that are just talking." Uh, I mean, you you know, putting a, asking someone to kill your wife is just trapping. yeah. I just gave you an example. Um, if
1: I said to you, yeah, I you know, right. go go do that," yeah, I would like. Yeah, or if I, I said mean, to you,
0: tax fraud is is you know, people go to jail for cheating on their taxes. That's yeah. just speech. It, that's
1: if I said to you, Josh, you're going to be uh, you're going to have to pay me ten percent of the proceeds from your podcast from now on, uh, or else I'm going to send someone to break your knees. All I'm doing is talking, but yeah. that, that's not protected, yeah. right? I mean, the First Amendment is broad, but where speech itself sort of constitutes action and it's not protected necessarily yeah got it and then the weakest of the cases the stormy
0: daniels one i've never i've got to say i never understand <laughs> i've never understood this case i think i i was this was very disheartened when it became the first case that was brought against him yeah i still don't really understand why it's a to, here's my problem with it so i think people understand the contours of this right he paid harsh money to shut up a a hooker who he'd slept with, and because it was during the election campaign, it's considered to be an illegal campaign donation, and he didn't register it. and it was so that's him donating to his camp to his campaign, or it being interpreted as him donating to his campaign. But my confusion here is that it's hard to say that he wouldn't have done it had he not been running, right, right. So, because um, he just wants to protect his reputation. So, can j- does the well, act of running for president deprive me of the
1: right to do things that would burnish my reputation? So that's exactly what he would say. So, first of all, I, sh- I should point out Stormy Daniels is not—you said hooker. She's not a hooker. She's she's a okay. uh, she's an adult film actress. Little, my apologies. Different. No, it's, it's okay. I just want me. I love her. But um, yeah, I mean, she, you know, so um, yeah, so Trump's team pays her off to silence her, which is not a crime, by the way. It's it's it happens quite a bit in this country. It's called catch and kill sometimes where wealthy people pay for stories, pay for the exclusive rights, to stories about them and kill them. Um, And a lot of this, meaning don't run them. And a lot of this has only come to light the last 10 years or so. A lot of this came to light through uh, reporting of people like Ronan Farrow and others on the way that um, Harvey Weinstein and other sexual predators paid off people um, with non-disclosure agreements and all that. Okay. That's not the crime. The crime, now you're, you're right, Josh, The Part of the crime is well, it was really a campaign expenditure. It would have been over the limits that you're allowed to spend. It should have been reported as such. That's the crime. But the, but the Fed that would have been the federal crime. And I report in the book about how DOJ very carefully looked at that and agree or disagree. They decided not to charge it because they, as you said, there's two They part of their reason, and I got the inside story here, is they said first of all they have a bad history of doing this. They have a very low success rate. They brought it somewhat similar case against john edwards who had been a senator he ran for vice president and they lost that case because it's hard to prove because he ran for president oh, president right he was but sorry wait uh, yeah he yeah. ran he ran for president then he was the vp candidate the with VP to, candidate yes with right. kerry yes. kerry was running for right so he was a vp candidate and he was a u.s senator from North Carolina. okay yeah um but as you say so many things that any candidate does is designed to promote his candidacy and can you can you really um log it all as a campaign expenditure what if what if a what if, you know what if he gets a haircut it's made it's meant to make him look better i mean it's not a perfect analogy but there's a lot of gray area there what new york state prosecutors did the way they've charged him is falsification of business records so what they did is they got their hands on the trump organization's internal records and on the internal records it doesn't say you know hush money to porn star. It doesn't say um, it doesn't say, you know, catch and kill money. It says legal fees, legal fees. And so they argue that's false. They weren't legal fees. And so they were falsely booked, which on its own is a very low level crime in New York City. It's a, it's a misdemeanor in New York under New York state law, meaning a very minor crime. Nobody goes to prison for a misdemeanor. The way it's charged is as a misdemeanor. It only bumps up to a felony the more serious type, but the lowest level, there's five layers of felony, A, the most serious down through E. This would be an E felony if it violates campaign finance laws, as you say. Um, And the problems with this case are, there's a lot of problems. One, the conduct is now eight years old. That's a long time. And to take it from me, juries care less about things that happened longer ago. B, it's arguable whether Trump is responsible for the, the, the crime is the way these payments were booked. And if you listen, which if you listen to Michael Cohen, who's going to be that's this is point C. The star witness here is Michael Cohen, who has all sorts of credibility issues. And I should say I'm friendly with Michael Cohen. I like him. We talk. We, you know, we, we've gotten together socially, but he definitely has credibility issues. I mean, he's pled guilty to perjury. He's pled guilty to fraud. He, he's been caught. He despises Donald Trump. He openly hates him. Um, the problem is Michael Cohen at one point made a tape recording of Donald Trump. On, when he was representing Trump and Trump didn't know it. And in it, Trump says something. They're talking about the Stormy Daniels payments. And Trump says, how are we going to pay her with cash? And Michael Cohen says, no, 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 no. Me and Alan Weiselberg, don't worry. Me and Alan Weiselberg are going to take care of it. Weiselberg was the CFO. So the defense goes, folks, who's responsible for booking these payments? The lawyer, here you have Michael Cohen, their star witness saying me, the lawyer, and the CFO, we're going to handle how they're booked. You don't worry your, your head about it, Mr. Trump. So it's a it, look, the, but uh, but I should say Trump is hated in New York, in New York County. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but he got something like 10 um, percent or 12 percent of the vote in 2020, which is astonishing. So, you know, he's going to have a very unfavorable jury pool here. But yeah, even but if I mean, he gets, the,
0: whole, <clears throat> the yeah. whole point of a legal system is that people who are hated and loathed and reviled are up, upheld and given fair trials and presumed innocent. I mean, there's something yep. about this case that to me, yep. I just think if if any... Trump hater flips the script in their head and imagines that this was being done to their favorite candidate. This yep. kind of persnickety, like filtering yeah, didn't through log all it the right. details, internal didn't papers. exactly, yep. right. And then we can up the crime because there's there's this other underlying thing, which is that you wanted to protect your reputation during a campaign. Like right. anyone who has run a, a business or who has, you know, yep. been in a stoush with the IRS or the yep. tax office, yep knows that there's probably something on line 472b right. they filled in incorrectly that right. if they had the kind of people hunting them that donald trump does they could they could probably get in trouble so i think this was yep. a this was a mistake in my opinion just from a pr perspective to bring it now, feeds so into the narrative of the trump narrative of a witch hunt
1: if you talk to democratic operatives people who've worked democratic campaigns democratic white houses on Hill over democrats they hate this case Some of them saying publicly on air, like they just think it's overreach. It plays into Trump's narratives. Uh, Like you were just saying that people are just going, you know, rifling through all his stuff, looking for anything. Uh, The fact that it was the first one that dropped, it was the first of the four was not ideal. And if this is the first and perhaps only case that goes to trial, I mean, I think there's a, a legitimate question about whether it will even hurt him politically if he gets convicted. Like there was polling recently where, Trump was ahead of Biden by two to five points in, uh, I think it's five different swing states. But they asked then, they said, if Trump gets convicted and sentenced, would that flip your vote? And it flipped a few points, but a few points could be decisive here. It went from Trump winning, beating Biden by two to five points to Biden beating Trump by two to five points. But I don't think the pollsters and I don't think the respondents were thinking of the hush money case. I think they were thinking of the Jack Smith cases, which are much more the the January 6th case. And the, the classified documents case, um, I think if you specifically say would a conviction in the hush money case make a difference, I think you have very few people who say would say I would have voted for him, but not if he's convicted in the hush money case. You do have a handful, small but potentially very important handful, who I think say I would vote for him, but not if he's convicted of. You know, Mm. January 6th. And look, as a
0: political journalist myself, I'm very skeptical about polls like that because I don't think they capture what people's response will be to watching the news every day or going through their social media feeds and seeing testimony from people. Seeing, like, to me, what what would be damaging to Trump would be relentless days of damning testimony about what was going on in December and January prior to January 6th. It would be like the conviction is. Somewhat moot in in, in a way well, in terms of the PR battle. If 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 you spend September and October talking about his criminal enterprises, then right. you bring to the forefront of swing voters' minds, uh, you know the the threat of having another four years of this asshole tinkering around with things, and maybe that just ramps up the turns up the volume a little bit on that characteristic of his.
1: That's interesting because one of the one of the odd features of this is we know so much. And a, a, lot, a lot of the credit here goes to the Congressional January 6th Committee, which held its hearings not this past summer, summer of 2022. I mean, there's a, I forget how many pages, 800 page report. Like there's very little that we don't know right now. Now, sure, prosecutors may find some new angles or new nuggets, but- Right, but who's we the we so who's
0: much. doing the knowing? I mean, you and I yeah. know this- yeah, so voters in you know elections in America are by definition decided by people who haven't been paying attention to this. That's why they're swing voters yeah. because they don't have strong opinions one way or another, and they don't, yeah. they don't follow the follow things very closely. They'll start following things in September, and right, you know whatever is um, swirling around in the news then will will
1: nudge them one way or another. And important to keep in mind, if Trump's on a criminal trial, he has to be in the courtroom, so he will be physically removed from the campaign trail. And to your point. I think it's very unlikely that we see any of these trials carrying on in September, October a November, because it, it's a rule to varying extents, written or unwritten, understood or whatever, that you don't do things as a prosecutor too close to an election that are likely to influence that election. Now, that rule has been compromised at times, famously by James Comey, when he made two big announcements that were harmful to Hillary Clinton on the eve of the 2016 election. People have said he lost the election for Hillary Clinton, not not my area to judge, but I don't see any realistic way a judge keeps Trump on trial through September and October, the heart right. of the general election, and confines him to a, to a courtroom in whether it's Manhattan or D.C. or Florida. So I, I sort of, when you're looking at the calendar, I think the latest you can realistically start one of these trials, they're all going to take two to three months each, is July. I think once you get past July, you're, you're into no man's land.
0: Right. Interesting. OK, you you've said a couple of times during uh, this chat that uh, things like, well, Trump didn't incite violence on January 6th because he included words like be peaceful or he didn't, you know, necessarily well, know I'm
1: articulating of... that side. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Or he didn't necessarily know that, the you know, the harsh money payments were going out of the business because, you know, that was Michael Cohen's decision. One of the fascinating things in your book, I think, is just to, to, to draw the line between. This behavior and behavior that you grew up seeing in the mob—I mean, not yep. grew up, but like well, When, you, when <laughs> you were cutting your, <laughs> when you were a child, mob. My dad makes me sound like the son of Tony playing. Soprano. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, when you were cutting your teeth, I mean, as a uh, you know, as a prosecutor, then then the, this pattern of behavior that the mob, uh, what are? Talk us through yeah. some of the characteristics that well, enable people you. to persistently break the law without breaking the law.
1: And I was, I was the, I spent uh, most of my time in the Southern District of New York as a mafia prosecutor. Um, I was chief of organized crime unit at the end, deputy or co-chief, I should say, with another person. Um, and I, I'm, I always get a little reluctant to say Trump's like a mob boss because it's almost become cliche, but man, so many times, and I'm not basing this on the movies, Like I'm basing this on actual, and I in the book, I draw parallels between actual cases I prosecuted and Trump's conduct and man, oh man, does he understand the mobsters playbook? I mean, you just gave a couple examples, right? Always distance yourself, always build in that layer of insulation, never do the dirty work yourself. In the mob case, it might be on the books. It might be committing violence, but always have somebody else do it. And then have that person be somebody who, if they flip on you, they're a sleaze bag. You can accuse them of horrible things. Michael Cull- I'm not saying Michael Cull is a sleaze bag, but that'll be the accusation. Um, say it with, I have a chapter called say it without saying it, how really savvy criminals and bosses. And I give all these examples from, from my, my experience, know how to give their orders and instructions without saying, okay, Michael Cohen, I want you to falsify my books. They just go, you know, do it in a way that I'll be okay or whatever, you know, do it in a way, you know, but Trump's really good at throwing in those little, Oh no, do it legal, do it legal. Just, but just, you know, you know what, like, Michael Cohen has said this. He said, Trump never told us to inflate his assets, but we knew what the marching orders were. I quote the movie Goodfellas. There's a great scene that's very true to life where they're at the barbecue and um, the boss, Paulie, is sitting there and someone comes over and whispers in his ear and Paulie just nods at him. And the voiceover from Ray Liotta goes, for a guy who moved all day, Paulie didn't talk to six people Um, because he doesn't need to say anything. He just nod you. You know, if you ever listen to real gangsters, on, if we ever, you know, we wiretap them sometimes with phones. We had a wiretap in a restaurant they ate at. They're a little, they're more guarded on the phone than they are in person, but they'll never go, hey, did that guy go pick up the shakedown money from the butcher? Did that guy beat the crap out of this guy? They'll go, hey, did you see the guy about that thing? Uh-huh. It's okay. All right. Like, you know, so Trump really knows how to speak in that ambiguous way. Um, I'll tell you another one that I point out in the book that's really come true is, Everyone knows that rich people pay for these legal dream teams for themselves. We all remember OJ and Alan Dershowitz and all this. Um, what real savvy bosses do is they pay for lawyers for other people around them. Not illegal. Um, in fact, D- I, I criticize DOJ for loosening their policies and allowing that more and more over the years, but it makes it very difficult, right? Um, and on, uh, usually, unless and until that person can break away from the, in this case, Trump funded lawyer, only then can they come clean. I mean, look at Cassidy Hutchinson. She's talked about this per- uh publicly. And again, I know her personally too. Um, Remind us who Cassidy was. Cassidy Hutchinson was a White House staffer. She worked in the chief of staff's office, but she was in the West Wing throughout the build-up to January 6th and January 6th. On January 6th itself, she then testified very dramatically in Congress. Um, And Cassidy has said when this all happened, she was given a Trump paid for lawyer. That's undisputed. And she didn't feel like she could tell the full truth at that point. She was too scared. She didn't want word to get back to him. She didn't want to Get punished. She didn't want to, she couldn't pay for her own lawyer. And so Mm. she withheld certain, intentionally, certain details from Congress. Only when she managed through various difficult uh, machinations to break away and get her own lawyer did she go back to the committee and say, okay, look, now I can tell you the full truth. Now I have this lawyer who really represents me. But I saw this all the time in the mob cases. I mean, bosses pay for everyone's lawyers. And I tell a case, a story in the book about a case where we had a lowish, mid to lowish level guy who wanted to flip, but he couldn't because he had a mob paid for lawyer. So I won't give away the whole thing, but he sent his girlfriend to deliver a secret message to the FBI. And I had to go to the judge and do this like secret proceeding to get him what we call shadow counsel, which it's legal. But we basically had the court secretly appoint a different guy to go in and talk to him. And that lawyer came out and went, yep, you're right. He wants to flip, and then we like pulled him out of jail and put mm. him in a safe you house.
0: have to smuggle him out through a tunnel or something. We
1: did. There, one, there's a whole yeah, system of no, tunnels. It's a great,
0: it's a great yeah. section of the book. I mean, and it was eye opening to me, really eye opening, that you say that there's essentially a cabal of lawyers oh, yeah. who are on the pay of the mob yes. and who are appointed, you know, and the poor, lowly, uh, you know, criminals who work for. The mob don't have any other option and don't necessarily know that the lawyer is working against their interests.
1: Well, they the do lawyer, use, will, in the mob, they know what's up. Like they know, they? oh yeah, they know who's pay- they know they're not paying, right? Well, like, they let's know say they're you're... not
0: paying, but I think right. they may be naive about the extent to which the lawyer is betraying them. I mean, you make the point oh, that the lawyer may not even yeah. present them with the option that there's a deal. You know, there may be a there may be a deal that could be struck. That the lawyer instructs them not to take yeah because the mob bosses obviously don't want them to flip but in my experience they don't, they're, they're not aware all aware that the lawyer is necessarily yeah. working against their interest are they
1: in my experience they're they're they get it they understand right, okay. if they're around the mob they're go- told hey this guy you know john you know john jones is going to be your lawyer making up that name if there's anyone named john mm. jones out there i apologize <laughs> they know what's up <laughs> and they know and in fact in our cases, I would do cases where we charge 20, 24, 27 defendants at once, all gangsters. We knew and they knew that nobody was allowed to plead unless the boss signed off. So even if we made a sweetheart – forget about cooperating. I just mean pleading, get out of the case. That wasn't allowed until the – and if the boss said, you're pleading, you're pleading, and they didn't want to, they're pleading. It's This right. is not a consensual situation.
0: And is that because they have an ethic of – of being loyal to the team and not ratting out or is it because yes. they're terrified of getting whacked if they betray Both. the
1: mob but, or, um, right it, 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 there's a well-established playbook when you have a case nobody does anything unless and until it's approved by the boss all the lawyers will speak for the boss the boss will speak through those lawyers or whoever the highest ranking guy is um,
0: and doesn't the lawyer that and have handle, a legal and ethical obligation yes, to represent yes. the client not the boss
1: Yes, yeah, so I actually talk about this in the book. There were a certain brand of lawyers who I'll not call mob lawyers because they get offended, um, but I- I'll tell you one example. There's a guy who I know who's still around. I actually talked to him recently. Who's been trying criminal defense cases for at least fifty. Let's say, let's be careful here. Forty years now. He's never once brought in a client to cooperate. Now, a lot of people cooperate in the federal system. I mean, and it's almost always the safest option. Right if you were to do a bar graph of outcomes people who go to trial usually fare the worst people who just plead without cooperating do better and people who cooperate get the best deals how is it possible this guy's represented literally thousands of people over 40 years and nobody's ever cooperated with him and and some of these guys this guy in particular says proudly I don't do rats that's just, this is his language because they and I, and I think this is a, a a breach of their ethical duty you're not representing your if you are not even presenting your client with one of three options, the best of three options often, because you want to protect your own standing, your own ability to keep getting mob cases. I think that's absolutely an ethical violation. And I say it in the book. I say nobody seems to want ever want to do anything about it. Judges or prosecutors or whatever. I mean, look, I'm not I never I never had a a fit about when I was a prosecutor, I never went to a judge and was like, oh judge, because they're just going to go, judge uh, look, I do what's best for my lawyer, my client, in any individual case, mm. and I assess the circumstances. And they can't force me to cooperate with anybody. It's just like an unprovable case. But after forty years of no cooperators, that's mathematically impossible.
0: I'm surprised so, that there's not a polite society of lawyers that they get booted out of.
1: It's really well. They they kind of do. I mean, I mean, they're not. You know, you're you're known as a mob. It's always funny because we know who the mob. I say in the book, if we were going to arrest twenty two guys the next day, I would be able to predict. Who 19 of those lawyers would be, I was, I won't name the names, but if you look at it, pull up any of my old docket sheets, you'll see the same defense names over and over and over Um, because they have their stable of approved lawyers and they're known as mob. The funny thing is, like, most of those guys get very offended if you call them mob lawyers. I did an episode of my podcast with one of a Murray Richmond who represented a boss in a murder case I did. And I say, like, are you offended by the phrase mob lawyer? He's like, no. It's like why would I for
0: it? <laughs> <laughs> It's a fair descriptor of precisely yeah, what right. I
1: do. Um, I know, you, I know,
0: you have to go, and we've yeah. established that if Trump wins the election, then probably all of these legal problems go away. If Trump yeah. loses the election, just put on your prognostic yeah. hat
1: for us. What happens? Great question, and not enough people are thinking about this. So, let's say he's been tried once or twice right before the election. Those cases will proceed to sentencing, and then he'll get to appeal. And then look, there's a possibility. Not likely. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's likely. I'm sure. Tell me what you think, Josh. Do you think if Trump loses the election and we get to and then Trump goes through one or more of these trials and he gets convicted and he gets sentenced to prison and it stands up on appeal? And here we are in, let's say, 2027, 20, uh, right? We're, we're right in the middle of a second term Joe Biden's presidency. And Joe Biden is 84 and Donald Trump is 80. And now there's nothing left between Donald Trump and prison. Do you think Joe Biden would not pardon him, but commute his sentence? Meaning not wiping out your conviction, but I'm going to eliminate your sentence and you're going to do home probation or whatever, home confinement or probation. I'm interested in what you think because people vary on that this. That like, is fascinating. What that do you think? Fascinating. Can you see it?
0: Thought experiment. I can absolutely see it. And I don't know. I really don't know. I don't yeah. know. I, I, yeah. I mean, I can totally see it happen either way. It depends what the climate of yeah. American politics is like. It depends how much- it depends how good artificial intelligence is at swamping us with misinformation how divided right. we are if the left if the left continues to be as it, if the left gets more exercised by social justice mobs i don't think it'll be possible for him to do right. that oh, and if the left calms down and swings back towards a more bernie sanders economic justice agenda, then I think he could get away with being the bigger guy and and doing interesting. But it's really hard to know.
1: Well, I will tell you, you, I've asked that that question of a lot of people and there's, you know, I think a lot of people can see it either way, but I will tell you the people who I know who have worked with and for Joe Biden are almost uniformly on the, yeah, I can see that happening side. Yeah, I can certainly see it
0: happening. I can certainly see it happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, The idea of, yeah. But I was going to say, there's another question of, if Trump loses the election, and let's say he's been tried once, how many of these trials are we actually going to see to fruition? Like, let's say he gets tried in D.C. for January 6th, Jack Smith, gets convicted, loses the election, gets sentenced to whatever. Then after, you know, now we're into 2025, he's lost um, and he's been convicted. And now we do the other Jack Smith case, the Mar-a-Lago case, and he gets convicted or not again. Are are we going to really do all four of these like if two or three of them are after and he's already been convicted, like the, there comes a point where prosecutors might say, okay, enough's enough. He's lost the election. He lost 2024. His political career is over. He's been convicted once or twice. And we don't see a need to have a third and a fourth trial and put everyone through this and yet again and again. Right, right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm. And the sentencing, just on the question of the commutation, of the Biden commutation, that depends on the sentence being actual jail time. What if the, yeah, what what options would the judge have? Uh, I mean, presumably there's house arrest and things like that, so he doesn't have to go into a federal penitentiary.
1: So there's two levels. So the the entity that sets the sentence is the judge. Um, In either of the two federal cases or the Fulton County case, um, I think if he's convicted, we're looking at very likely sentence of some imprisonment. The New York case, even if he's convicted, I don't think, I think we're looking at probation or something like that. What if there's going to be a commutation, the president, let's say Biden, uh, I mean, you know, that's who it would be if it's not Trump, has the power to say, okay, you were sentenced to, let's say, three years in prison federally. I'm going to reduce that to no prison, but just probation or no no prison, um, but just home confinement or something. So he can take it down. Um, To wherever he wants. He could say, rather than three years, I'm going to make you do six months. Um, So he has a lot of latitude if he is getting into commutation. Pardon would be wiping the whole thing out. I don't think a pardon's Mm. likely, but I think if there's going to be anything, it'll be a commutation.
0: OK, there's a whole other conversation about whether the presidential pardon and commutation power is just because I don't think it is. I think the justice system should be the justice <laughs> system and the executive branch should deal with the executive issues yep. and never the twain shall meet. But I know you've got to go. Great to talk to you. Thanks for your insights. Thank you, Josh. Stuff. Great to talk to you. I you appreciate on. it.